My name is Carrie, and I'm your scripture reader today. If you would remain standing while we read scripture together. Yes, my name is Carrie. I hope you have your name tags on today. So today we're starting our series in 1 Thessalonians. I'm super excited. I have a new journal and everything ready to go. I'm super stoked. <laughs> so today we're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, just the first three verses. If you could flip or turn or scroll there with me. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We always thank God for all you, making mention of you constantly in our prayers. We recall in the presence of our God and Father, your work produced by faith, your labor motivated by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. The word of the Lord. Thanks so much, Carrie. Uh, I love when Carrie reads. She reads with so much like passion and intensity, like... It just, uh, oh, it, get, like, it gets the motor going, you know what I'm saying? Like, we get up here and the, and the fire is already lit. Uh, we're starting a new series this morning. My name's Raiden, and I'm one of the pastors here at Red Hill, and we're starting a new series working again through a book of the Bible. We're going to be working through 1 Thessalonians. I'm super pumped about this. I've been reading this book um, quite a lot since I took my sabbatical back in the spring. It was one of the books that I read uh, several times through during my sabbatical. It's only five short chapters, and I was, uh, I was personally like super encouraged by the book and began to just be excited for my own self. So I spent most of the summer reading Psalms, Proverbs, and 1 Thessalonians just kind of on repeat and wanna encourage you. So my birthday is coming up, it's September 1st. There's only a few shopping days left for those of you interested. Uh, here's what I want for my birthday. For the month of September, I want everyone to read the book of 1 Thessalonians every day. It's five chapters. You can read it in a very, very small amount of time. And if you're like, I'm too busy to read it, I don't have time to read it, or I'm just not a reader, you can download the app Streetlights and they will read it to you. And you can have the whole book read to you in like probably 10 or 15 minutes. It takes no time. So pop it in and every single day I want you to read the book of 1 Thessalonians because I want us to be sort of baptized into the book, like immersed fully into it so that we sink into it and it sinks into us. I really love the book of 1 Thessalonians. Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica and as he writes to them, overwhelmingly he is encouraged by them, which is an awesome thing, right? It's, it's an awesome thing to think about this church is planted and the result of this church's planting is Paul basically says over and over again, every time I think about you, I'm encouraged. Every time I think about your faith, I'm filled up. Every time I think about your generosity, I'm inspired. And in fact, your church is exemplary. Across the whole world, your church is exemplary. And it struck me that every church is known for something. Chances are you can think about a church in your mind, you can probably find one without too much effort that has a really negative reputation. This is just what they're known for. This is what they're like, chewing up and spitting out pastors. Every church has a reputation. And together, what we'll do, not through the thoughts that we think, but through the words that we say and the actions that we take, we'll create a reputation for Red Hill. And by the way, by the way that we love one another, We'll create a lasting impression on each other for what this church was really like and what it was really about. 
If we become an unloving, hostile place, if we become a place where there's no room for mistakes, where there's no room for doubt, where there's no room for struggle, then we'll become known as a church that's legalistic and that punishes people who aren't perfect. But if we can be a place that embraces the gospel, then we'll be a place that people will know they can come here even if their life has fallen completely apart. And we will love them, we will embrace them, and we will walk with them back towards Jesus. So, for my birthday, the only thing I want you to get me is just read the book of 1 Thessalonians. Read it every day. And when you get to September 2nd and you missed September 1st, start over. Don't just bail out on the project because you missed one day because none of us are going to execute perfectly. And if you read it every single day and you do it perfectly, don't come and brag to me about it because then you lose the whole benefit. You lose the heavenly reward you would have gotten otherwise. Just keep it to yourself and Jesus and be like, I did it, Lord. Thank you because I know you really did it in me. Otherwise, it's going to be a total miss. The existence of the church in Thessalonica only, the only reason that that church existed is because Paul had a vision from God. God spoke to Paul in a dream. The end result of that is the church in Thessalonica. If you look back in Acts chapter 16, by the way, you're going to want to get your fingers like loosened up a little bit and, and pray for our tech team back there because there's a lot of cross-references. Uh, I think they'll all be up on the screens, but if they're not, I promise to, to read them. To you. Uh, Acts chapter 16, verses 9 and 10, it says, During the night, Paul had a vision in which a Macedonian man was standing and pleading with him, Cross over to Macedonia and help us. After he had seen the vision, we immediately made efforts to set out for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. And what happens next? They go to Philippi. They go to Philippi. They preach the gospel. Lydia, who's a wealthy woman, a slave girl who was demon-possessed, a Roman jailer, they all become Christians and plant the church at Philippi. And then the city gets into an uproar. Paul and his merry men, like his band of merry disciples, are beaten severely. They're imprisoned. And uh, so then they have to be sent from Philippi out to Thessalonica. So they go to Thessalonica. They take, by the way, the Ignatian Way. The Ignatian Way is a, a road. It was a road that was constructed that led from Macedonia, well, led through Macedonia out east. Hi, Phoebe Jean. So it goes through Macedonia, it goes through Philippi, through Macedonia, and out to the east. And that road still exists today. The Ignatian Way still exists today, uh, thousands of years later. Macedonia was a strategic port city. About 200,000 people lived there. The city still exists today, now with a population of about 300,000 people. And in Acts chapter 17 and verse 1, it tells you a little bit about the journey. It says, after they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. And as usual, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, including a large number of God-fearing Greeks as well as a number of the leading women. So they arrive in Philippi, they preach with great effectiveness, they get beat up and thrown in jail, the city goes into an uproar, so they go to Thessalonica where they preach the gospel in the synagogue, which was Paul's custom, to go to the synagogue where there would be Jewish people who were monotheists, they believed in God, 
and God-fearing Greeks, which basically were people who were exhausted with the culture as they found it. They found no answers, they found no peace, they found no help, no sense of satisfaction. The soul was still restless inside of them. So they came to the temple so that they could learn about the one true God. They're God-fearing Greeks, not yet believers in Jesus. So Paul comes, he spends three consecutive Sabbaths preaching to them, taking the Old Testament, opening it up, and reasoning with them that the Messiah had to suffer and die for the sins of the people, that he was to be the ultimate sacrifice for the people, and that Jesus was this Messiah. Paul's whole strategy was this. Find a place, find some people, open up the Old Testament and show them that Jesus is the promised Messiah. That was his whole evangelism strategy. It wasn't clever, it wasn't catchy, it wasn't cool, it wasn't interesting, it wasn't super strategic, there wasn't a neat graphic that went along with it. He didn't have gospel tracts, he just had the Old Testament, he would open it up and he would say, look at this, This is talking about the Messiah. Look at Jesus. Look at the life that he lived, the death that he died, the resurrection that he experienced, the people that you could still go and talk to about it. He is the one who was promised in the Old Testament. He's the fulfillment of all of God's promises. What happens? Some Jews are persuaded. A large number of Greeks are persuaded. And a number of leading women are persuaded. And then they start another riot. I feel like this could be, and I think I've said this before, a great mission statement for a church. Preach the gospel, raise a ruckus. Like just preach the gospel and raise a ruckus. If you do that, then things are gonna happen. I love you, Phoebe. If you preach the gospel, you're gonna raise a ruckus in the city. If you live boldly for Jesus, you're gonna raise a ruckus uh, in the city. I, I told you this last week, I don't know if anybody did it, but if you're looking for a great experience, if you're looking for a good story, if you're looking for something to talk about all week long, all you have to do today is just walk up to someone and say, do you believe that Jesus died for your sins, that you might be forgiven and experience eternal life with God in heaven forever? Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus actually died and resurrected from death, giving you hope that this life isn't all that there is? You ask him those two questions, and I promise you what happens next is going to be a good story. It's going to be a really good story, a really good story. So they start a riot. What happens? They have to flee to Berea. It says in Berea they had more success. By the way, the book of Acts is like the Cliff Notes version of the novels that would be written about how the local church got started. It's just, it's just like, it's like Luke is following around Paul and Silas and Timothy and all these churches are being planted and Luke is like, guys, you gotta slow down. Like I can only write so much about what's happening. Yeah, like the whole city's on fire. So what do we write? There's a riot in the city. We have no clue what that riot looked like. We have no experience for preaching the gospel in such a way that the whole town riots against you. And you have to flee to another city. So they go to Berea. Here's the thing, though. The opposition to the gospel in Thessalonica was so severe, so extreme, that those people that persecuted them followed them the 40 miles to Berea. Because they heard the gospel is going forward there. So they set Berea on fire too. They start another riot. Preach the gospel, raise a ruckus. Preach the gospel, raise a ruckus. So what happens? They have to flee to Athens. They go to Athens. And Paul says when he goes to Athens that he's completely overwhelmed 
He's completely overwhelmed by the idolatry of the city. If you, if you uh, look um, in Acts chapter 17, you see the Areopagus address. This is the, uh, when Paul talks and he says there's a statue to the unknown God. And he tries to preach the gospel. And only a very small number of people believe in Athens. He's overwhelmed by the idolatry of the city. And after that, he goes to Corinth. So he goes to Corinth, and Corinth maybe is the church that's in a cultural setting the most like our day. Just sexually sick and perverted, all kinds of problems throughout the church, all kinds of just crazy, weird stuff is happening, and it's infected the church, and it's not healthy, and it's not good. If you, if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, just, just one book over, just a few pages over, um, my Bible doesn't want to flip there. It wants to go straight to Romans. First Corinthians chapter 2. No, I got to go past Romans. Sorry, guys. Sometimes my brain doesn't work too good. Paul says in verses uh, 1 through 5, when I came to you, brothers, this is him talking to the church at Corinth, when I came to you, brothers and sisters, announcing the mystery of God to you, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him uh, crucified. I came to you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. We're just going to stop right there. I came to you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. Guys, he goes to Philippi, he gets beat up and thrown in jail and the city is uh, rioting. So he goes to Thessalonica where he gets persecuted and the city riots. So he goes to Berea where the, the persecutors follow him. So he goes to Athens where he's overwhelmed with the idolatry of the city and almost no one believes. So he goes to Corinth and he says when, I, when he gets to Corinth, he's like, I'm weak, I'm trembling, he's trying. Right? He's doing more than I do most of the time. He's doing more than you do most of the time. He's traveling to these places where the gospel is not. Have you ever felt like this? Like, God, I'm really trying. Like, I'm actually trying. Why does it have to be so hard like this? Why do I always have to struggle? Why is there always so much opposition? Paul, writing to the Corinthians, is like, I didn't come to you on top of the world. I didn't wait until I felt good and strong personally before taking the gospel to the places that it needed to go. I didn't wait until I had everything together and felt really secure in my own walk and really confident. It's no wonder he came to them in weakness and in trembling. It's no wonder he came to them thinking to himself, I really don't have a very good strategy for this. I don't have this figured out. I came in weakness. I came in much trembling. That's how he gets there. We have no theology of suffering. We just have no theology. We have no comprehension of suffering. Alistair Begg, he says, we think it's our job to make Jesus look good and to make Christianity look easy. And the world can't relate to that. You can't even relate to that. I can't relate to that. What we fail to recognize is that without persecution, the gospel might never have left Philippi. Can you imagine? 
the Apostle Paul goes to Philippi. This wealthy woman gets saved. They cast a demon out of a slave girl. A Roman jailer gives his life to Jesus and becomes a follower of Jesus. With that kind of a core team, you got a broad reach into the city. Hundreds of people began professing faith in Jesus and the church begins growing. And Paul thinks to himself, maybe I should write a bestseller. Philippi is an awfully nice place to be. Maybe I'll just throw down roots right here. And instead of living the life of an abused, tormented, frightened, frail Christian missionary, I'm just going to settle in right here and be a successful pastor. That's probably how I can make the biggest impact on the kingdom. It's persecution that pushed the gospel forward. I read once that it was the blood of the martyrs that became the seed of the church. Seems to be the way that it almost always is. That as persecution breaks out, the gospel becomes most effective. And those who believe it become most bold for it. Why are we in Corinth right now? Like, this is, the, after all, First Thessalonians. <laughs> and we've been in a lot of places yet, but we haven't been in First Thessalonians yet. The answer is actually found in First Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 and 7. So if you want to flip to the book we're going to be in, but not the chapter uh, that we're going to be in and not the text that we're going to use today, but First Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 and 7, Paul says, But now Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news about your faith and love. He reported that you always have good memories of us and that you long to see us as we long to see you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and affliction, we were encouraged about you through your faith. Can you imagine like, what it felt like to be Paul? Because it's easy to forget he's a real human being and to be wondering, am I just wasting my whole life? Like, did I miss it? What if that dream was just a, like a, a weird piece of food and it wasn't God at all? Because I went to Philippi and like three people believed. And then they beat me up and threw me in jail. I had to run away. I go to Thessalonica and sure there were some people who believed, but the whole city rioted against me. So I went to Berea, and man, they were awesome. Like, they studied the Bible. Like, they didn't just take me at my word. They opened the Bible themselves and read it and studied it. But then those same guys followed me again. So I went to Athens, a city just full of idols, and almost nobody even believed. And then I go to Corinth, and I find a group of Christians, and they're a mess. What am I even doing with my life? And he says, Timothy brought back this report about you. In Acts 18.5, says, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself to preaching the word and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. You cannot ever overestimate what encouragement can do for someone. The impact that encouragement can have upon a soul who desperately needs it. And you and I 
almost never know who really needs it the most. We almost never know. Paul got worried about the church in Thessalonica, and he says in Thessalonians, I'm not going to get to that today, <laughs> later we'll get to it. He says, over and over again, I really wanted to come see you, and when I couldn't stand it any longer, just thinking, what if it all fell apart because of the severe persecution? I sent Timothy and Silvanus, like I sent Silas and Timothy to check on you, and they brought back this report that your faith is strong, that you're facing the hard times. And man, I'm so encouraged by that and by the fact that you love me. That you love me. You believe I'm really an apostle. You're thankful for me. Paul writes this whole letter in response to the encouragement from that church. We have this letter because the church encouraged Paul. And Paul's like, I'm gonna reciprocate and I'm gonna encourage you guys. So, 1 Thessalonians chapter one. Welcome to the text. Start the clock on the sermon. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. A little bit. Verse one, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Silvanus is the Roman name. It's the proper name for Silas. Paul, we've already talked about who he is a little bit. But I thought it might be helpful just to know that this is a different name than Saul. There's a whole other letter that's different. It's the first one. It's not an S, it's a P. The name Paul means small. And historians tell us that Paul was a little guy with a strong frame. He had a big nose, walked with a limp. Later in life, he had really bad eyesight. He was bow-legged, bald-headed, and had a unibrow. And it was reported about him that sometimes he had the face of a man and sometimes the face of an angel. He was self-described the least of the apostles. I don't think it's coincidence that God took this man that would become a spiritual giant of the faith outside of Jesus, maybe the greatest Christian who's ever lived and certainly the greatest and most courageous missionary that ever lived and said, I'm going to give you a new name, and your new name is going to be Little. We're going to call you Junior. We're going to call you Small. You're going to be the little guy. The least of the apostles, a brilliant mind, a giant heart, a courageous spirit, an investor in others, a believer in church planting, a deep lover of Jesus. Silvanus and Timothy. Timothy would have been really young at this time. That's why he's not mentioned in the Acts account. It's, it's thought that he was not mentioned because he was protected from the front-facing part of the ministry at this point because he was still so young that they didn't want him to have to suffer the beatings and the imprisonment. So he was protected some. But his entrance really into the front line of ministry was when Paul said, hey, Silas and Timothy, I want you to go check on Thessalonica. And Paul says, I'm writing to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. This is a really common greeting. This is a normal way uh, in ancient Israel to write your letters. You start with who you are. So instead of saying like, dear uh, Josh, I would say, from Raiden, the short church planter in Edwardsville, 
to Josh, my friend and fellow elder at Red Hill. Like that's how all those things began. And Paul commonly says grace to you. Again, Alistair Begg, he says, grace is the fountain and peace is the stream that flows from it. The world lacks a lasting peace because the world lacks a lasting grace. The world lacks a deep and abiding peace because the world has never experienced a deep and abiding grace. If your life is lacking a lasting and satisfying peace, then check to see whether or not you are experiencing a lasting and satisfying grace. Hi, Phoebe. Examine that in your own heart. Am I experiencing the grace of Jesus? Because oftentimes what's deeply unsettling to me is that I know I'm a hypocrite. I know I'm not what I'm supposed to be. I'm supposed to be a faithful follower of Jesus, a saint, a son, satisfied in him, overjoyed in him, thankful in him living a holy life, and instead, I'm me. And so this deeply unsettling feeling crawls all over me. And then if I can remind myself that in Christ, I receive grace, he gives to me what I don't deserve. He does not give to me what I do deserve. That I give from him grace. What issues from the experience of grace is a lasting and a satisfying peace. Peace is a result of grace. Apart from grace, there can be no peace. The only thing that you can do without grace is numb yourself, distract yourself, or lie to yourself. But when you experience grace, you discover peace. This is why there's no feeling In the history of feelings, there's no feeling like when you finally and fully surrender your life to Jesus. When you finally lay it down and you say, okay, I give up. I trust you. What washes over you, the experience that you have is unlike anything you could ever possibly imagine. Peace. Peace. Paul says, we always thank God for all of you, making mention of you constantly in our prayers. This, I think, is something not to be overlooked. I personally describe discouragement this way. You're no longer willing to try. You just ran out of gas, and you just can't try anymore. Whatever it is, Friendship, relationship, reading your Bible, getting a promotion at work, getting a better grade, running a further distance, lifting a heavier weight, being a better husband or father, better mom or better wife, better sister or brother, whatever it is, whatever it is you're trying to do. When you get discouraged, you just say, I'm just not willing to try anymore. And to encourage someone is to give them the courage to try again. Paul says, I'm encouraged by you. And in Acts 18.5, it says, he was encouraged by them, and he began to preach the gospel with boldness. 
And so Paul says, we always thank God for you, making mention of you constantly in our prayers. I'm always thanking God for you. I want to pour out encouragement on you. And I just want to ask you a question, something for you to think about and something that's going to be brought up during the response time. Who is it that has tremendously impacted your walk with Jesus? What's the name that comes to mind when you go, this person loved me, they cared for me, they invested in me, they made a difference in my life. For me, the list is really long. There's so many people, but the one that stands out the most to me, at least right now, this morning, is David Starry, who was my youth pastor. Now, I say David was my youth pastor, but the truth is, is that during my 7th through 12th grade years, during those six years, I had seven different youth pastors. Partly because I was at a large church where there was high turnover when I was in junior high. And then uh, I went to a small church in a new town. And then I left that church and went to another church. And about a month after I got there, the youth pastor left. I guess he was like, can't do it here with that guy. I got to move on. And then David Starry came in my senior year. Right before my senior year was when David became my youth pastor. The experience that I had had right before David was this, that I had a youth pastor and I was on the youth leadership team. And those of you who haven't been in a youth ministry with a youth leadership team, here's what it actually is. The youth pastor collects the popular kids, gives them a little title, and then has special meetings with them where they really don't do a whole lot. But still, it was a thing to be on the youth leadership team, right? I mean, if we're honest, that's what most of the youth leadership teams were. At least that's what they were that I experienced. And so I was on the youth leadership team, and um, the youth pastor's office was this small little office, and then there was this little um, conference room that was connected to it. It was about the size of the Red Hill office. And so after youth Wednesday night, all of us were hanging out. Those are my boots, yeah. All of us are hanging out, and, uh, and the youth pastor's like, Okay, guys, well, it's about time to start the youth leadership team meeting. And so we all get up. And when I say we, I mean including myself, get up, and we start walking towards the conference room. And my youth pastor puts his hand on my shoulder. And he says, he says hey, um, what, like, what are you doing? Where are you, where are you headed? I said, oh, I'm, I'm going into the meeting. And he goes, oh, you're not on the youth leadership team anymore. And I was like, uh, What? And he goes, yeah, I told at last Sunday at the uh, pool party, I told everybody who was on the youth leadership team that they were on it. And I just, I didn't get to you to tell you that you're not on it anymore. And I was like, okay, well, do you mind if I ask why? Like, why, why am I not on it? And he said, oh, I, I just don't think you're a leader. I don't see any potential for leadership in you. And so uh, I went home and I was like, okay, well, mom and dad, you can do whatever you want. I'm not going to that church anymore. I'm done. I'm done there. And I left that place in this defeated, discouraged state and went to Oak Grove Baptist Church. And Oak Grove Baptist Church was where I met David Starry, who was one of the first people who looked at me and said, I think God could use you to do some great things if you'd surrender your life to him, if you'd follow him. Like, follow his call on your life. I think God could use you to, great, to do some great things. I preached my first sermon with David Starry's blessing. He asked me to speak to the youth in our youth group. And I spoke from John chapter 4, the woman at the well. And uh, I think it lasted like seven minutes. I remember I gave everybody a piece of gum. I was like, start chewing the gum. Everybody start chewing the gum. And then at the end of the sermon, I was like, you know how the gum doesn't have any flavor anymore? That's because it doesn't satisfy. But Jesus does satisfy. <laughs> Right. 
Oh, it was powerful. Like the way I remember it, 74 people got saved. No, it was awful. Just like everybody's first sermon, it was awful. It was just so bad. And afterwards, David met with me and he was like, that was so powerful, man. You touched, you touched my heart. Like I'm, I'm gonna be a better follower of Jesus because you opened up the Bible and taught me today. You can't, like, I'm not standing here today without his investment in my life. I don't know where I am. I don't know what I'm doing without his investment in my life. Who is it for you? I know there's somebody who's been that to you. I, I, what I love about Paul is that he wrote to people and he just told them, here's what's going on. Here's how I'm really feeling. Here's what I really think and here's what's really important. Part of the response moment today, I'm just gonna like go ahead and steal from the end of the sermon, is I'm gonna call on you all to get a pen and a piece of paper and an envelope and a stamp and write a letter to someone and tell them what they mean to you. Because you don't know what that encouragement will do to them. So be thinking about it. Write a name down if you need to. In verse three, Paul says, we, that's him and Silas and Timothy, we recall in the presence of, God, of our God and Father, your work produced by faith, your labor motivated by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Work produced by faith, labor motivated by love, and endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. We're just gonna look at those three phrases and then we'll be done. Your work produced by faith. If you flip over to the book of James, this has long been my favorite book of the Bible because it's so simple and it's so practical. It's why my son Nathan's middle name is James, named after my favorite book of the Bible. James chapter 2, verses 14 through 20. They'll be up on the screen. And then also verse 26. James says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, stay warm and be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith, if it doesn't have works, is dead by itself. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I will show you faith by my works. You believe that God is one? Good. Even the demons believe, and they shudder. Senseless person, are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? In verse 26, it says, For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Works produced by faith. Paul says to the church in Thessalonica, We recall in the presence of God your work that's produced by faith. Faith in Jesus changes us. It changes us. And the work that's being described here is just the everyday experience of being a human being. We are supposed to be different in the world. We're supposed to stand out. It's wild to me that for the majority of my life, all I really wanted to do was fit in. 
All I really wanted to do was like just be just like everyone else and not really be thought of as this adjacent Jesus freak weirdo. But when we have faith in Jesus, it transforms everyday life. Our consciences, they become sensitive to the leading of the Spirit in our will to act, which has been sanctified by that same Spirit, is engaged. So it's not just that we see something and go, ah, man, that's really sad. It's that we see something. The Spirit of God provokes us to actually do something. That was the point. It wasn't that every single homeless person that you come across, you're supposed to give them your shirt and all the money in your pocket. It's that you're supposed to be living sensitive to the Spirit, transformed by the faith that you have in Jesus, that that's supposed to change everyday life for us. When we have faith in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us, it changes us. If your life isn't bearing fruit, if there's no transformation in your everyday life, don't just try to be a better person. Don't just try to go and like muster up the action that you're supposed to take. That's like taping apples to an orange tree. It's not going to work. All you're going to get are bad oranges and dead apples. You have to be transformed on the inside. So you begin with faith. Do I really believe do I really believe that Jesus died to pay for the sins of the world? Because if I believe that, it means that sin has a consequence that's everlasting. And that sin's pervasive effects can be felt throughout all creation. And that part of the reason that I was rescued and redeemed was so that I could be an agent of restoration taking a broken world and bringing it back into the image of God, back into the purposes for which he created it, back into the place where all of creation no longer groans under the weight of sin, but has been liberated by the grace of Jesus and gets to experience the uh, deeply embedded and lastingly abiding peace that can only be found in that grace. Has my life been changed? Has my life been transformed? Paul says, we recall the work that you guys did that's produced by faith. We recall the way that you changed, that your lives were transformed, not in the ether, not out there somewhere mentally, but that you were actually different people because of Jesus. Man, if my life would look the same without Jesus, then I have faith in something besides Jesus. If I can live all of my life without the help of the Holy Spirit, if I can live all of my life without needing to depend upon Jesus, my faith is somewhere else. He says, we remember your work produced by faith and your labor motivated by love. The first one is work. The second one is labor. Work, just the way that you live everyday life, the works that you do. But labor is a sweat-producing, fatigue-inducing effort. Does this describe your walk with Jesus? Sweat-producing, fatigue-inducing effort. It's said of most churches that 80% of the work is done by 20% of the people. That wasn't the story in Macedonia. 
That wasn't the story in Thessalonica. Paul says, we recall in the presence of God our Father the way that you guys were busting it to move the gospel forward. Notice that the cost of their love is what's in focus, not the result of their love. Paul doesn't say, you guys are the single most effective church that has ever lived. Somebody needs to write a book about you. Look at all the fruit. Look at all the people surrendering their lives to Jesus. It's as if this encouragement about their faith that Paul received reminded him that faithfulness is success. Faithfulness is success. So what does he shine a spotlight on? Not the numerical advancement of the local church, but the way that they are sacrificially working, giving, and serving so that others might hear, so that the gospel might move forward. There will never be great acts of sacrifice, great acts of service, great acts of ministry until there is a burning passionate love for Jesus and people. Never. Until there is a burning and passionate love for Jesus and people, you know what we'll do and you know what we'll be? Nice. There's a lot that can be said about Paul. He's not often described as nice. He's not really like a go along to get along kind of a dude. He's bald-headed, bow-legged, unibrowed, hook-nosed, big old nose, walking with a limp, can't see anything. Busting out the power of Jesus everywhere he goes. And this little bitty dude who's ugly and bow-legged, can't see and can't walk, and he's got a thorn in his flesh that one of my friends used to say, I think he actually had a thorn and he just couldn't reach it and couldn't convince anybody to get it out. Like, it's like, please, can someone help me? And nobody would help him. This guy, this guy had a burning, passionate love for Jesus. And all of his blood, sweat, and tears was produced because of that burning, passionate love for Jesus. But you know what we often do? We try to invert the equation. I got to work harder. I got to do more. I got to be better. I got to try again. And then maybe at some point, I'll feel like everybody else feels. The great acts of sacrifice in history are motivated by love. Every moving story that you've ever read, every incredible epic movie that you've ever watched, every tale of bravery and heroism that's ever been told, it's the same story. Someone out of a great love was willing to make a great sacrifice at great personal cost, not even sure that it would result in what they were hoping it would produce unsure of the effect, absolutely sure of the willingness to lay your life down because you deeply love. That's what it is to follow Jesus. It's to follow him into his death and into his burial in hopes of the resurrection. Love so amazing. Love so divine demands my life, my soul, my 
all. And to give Jesus something less than that is deeply insulting and offensive to the price that was paid for me. To the ransom that set me free. He says, I remember your work produced by faith, your labor motivated by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Endurance, an active constancy in the face of extreme difficulty. An active constancy, like actively pressing on in the face of extreme difficulty. Paul said to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians, I think it's chapter 7, he said to the church in Corinth, you guys are rich, but let me tell you about the Macedonians. Deeply, like severely persecuted, completely impoverished, we had to tell them, you don't need to give us anything else for the churches that are being planted. Please keep a little bit for yourself. They're an inspiration. They're endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. The only thing that I have to compare to this is so laughably weak, but it's the only thing I got, so I'm going to give it to you, is when I ran the marathon and I got to mile 22, at the mile marker for mile 22, the whole group of people that I had been sort of like trailing, that I was using as my rabbit, the whole group, like 10 of them, peeled off. Three of them started puking. Three or four of them laid down on the ground, and the rest of them just bent over like this. And I remember thinking in that moment, it's not that I hate running. It's not that I hate marathons. It's that I hate everything and everyone and myself and the world and legs and arms and lungs and life. It's, it's, it's everything. I just hate everything. And, and here was the thought that propelled me forward. At the finish line, I'm going to tell a story about what happened. And I'm specifically probably gonna talk about this moment when everything in me felt like opposition. And the story I'm gonna tell is either I endured or I gave up. What story do I wanna tell? And so very, very slowly I continued running. I, that, that's not like a reason to like celebrate me or anything like that. I'm saying that's what endurance is. Endurance is when you get to the place where you say, all I want to do is quit. You just don't quit. You don't give up. You just keep putting one foot in front of the other one. Active constancy in the face of extreme difficulty. Again, I think we lack a theology of suffering it's a tremendous mistake to believe that life for anyone is easy. It's a tremendous mistake to think that money makes life easy, that fame makes life easy, that success makes life easy, that a large number of friends makes life easy, that doing what you love makes life easy, that pursuing your best life now makes life easy. Because the truth is, nothing makes life easy. And we fail ourselves and we fail our friends if the sole goal and the sole purpose of our life is to try to make Jesus look cool and Christianity look easy. 
Paul says, I remember your hope. Excuse me, I remember your endurance inspired 